this morning is from the Gospel of Luke in the 22nd chapter, beginning in the 21st verse. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This is the word of the Lord. After hearing God's word read, let us join now together in confessing our sins as we pray the prayer of confession as printed in the bulletin. Children, you may go to your respective classes. Let's return to the scripture we read with Blake just a few moments ago from Luke chapter 22. For several years, we've been in a study in the gospel according to Luke, and we've been in chapter 22 now. This is the third week. We're in that upper room, and and with Tyler's message, and then mine last week with, with Judas as we jump back to the first of the chapter. Tyler is speaking about the Passover and the Lord's Supper uh, three weeks ago, three Sundays ago, and then last week on Judas. We've tried to, to enter that upper room, to be there, to see ourselves as there and understand what was happening and all the dynamics. We're not flying through this chapter at all. We could, we could spend a year in this chapter. Um, this morning... Looking at uh, Jesus uh, and a seemingly ludicrous conversation that takes place between the disciples. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Jesus who was there, who's here this morning. Let's ask him to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We bow before you as your priests, not just your prophets taking your word to the world around us and our homes and our neighborhoods as we proclaim God's word through our words and through our actions. But we bow before you as priests who are under the, your command to come and bring the world around us, bring our homes and bring our neighbors and, and bring the world around us before you in prayer. Oh, Father, 
we pray that we'll not only learn to be prophets, but teach us at Christ's Presbyterian Church to be priests before you. Burden our hearts for the world around us. Our Father, we come this morning in thanksgiving. This is in our culture, in our country, this is a holiday. We pray, Father, in thanksgiving this Memorial Day weekend. We thank you for the men in this congregation, men like Billy Griggs, who served this country the risk of his own life, who was there at Iwo Jima and all the brutality that was there in a just war. Our Father, we thank you for the men who have served, the men and women who have served. Our Father, we pray for our country this day. We are wandering away from you as a country at a fast pace. We pray that you would yet have mercy. We pray that, Father, you would send an Elijah, a Jeremiah, a John the Baptist one more time. Even though we've turned away, send, Father, your word forth in power across this land and yet have mercy. But we pray that if that's not to be, that in this place, at Christ Presbyterian Church in Fayette County, we pray that the gospel would be fearlessly proclaimed for generations to come. And even, Father, if a deeper darkness falls, we pray that this will be a place of light. We hold it up. Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, and by the power of your word, that this ever might be a place of salvation and healing. Our Father, we pray for Billy Griggs this morning. We thank you for the health that you've given him, and we pray that you would bless him in these days, sustain him, cause him to look forward, Father, with hope and with anticipation, knowing that you have a place prepared for him. Bless Jim Bennington in the same way this morning. We pray that you would meet Jim's needs and provide a place for him where he can receive constant care. And now, Father, as we open your word, we're ever conscious that John, not John Sartell, not anyone that stands behind this desk is able to bring your word with such power that it, it changes us from the inside out. That lies in no man's power. And so we pray that in these next few minutes that your spirit would speak in power this morning in this place. Continuing that change that began in some of us years ago. And Father, maybe changing some for the first time. So bless us this morning 
Make it plain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you serve Jesus? Or does Jesus serve you? An efficiency expert had been lecturing in a business seminar on how to save time and steps and how to be most efficient inside of this particular business. He had been telling them how to make the offices of this specific business more efficient. He concluded his lecture, though, in a strange way. He warned them, don't try to put these techniques to work in your home. And, of course, somebody asked, why not? He said, let me tell you a story. For years, I watched my wife's routine at breakfast. She made lots of trips to the refrigerator, the stove, table, cabinets. And often she was just carrying one item. After watching this for several years, I finally said to her, honey, I'm an efficiency expert. Every day I tell people how to save time and energy in their offices, how to be efficient. Let me make a suggestion for the way you work in the kitchen. Why don't you try carrying several items at once, for instance? Why make all those different trips with one item? And then he grew quiet. Someone in his seminar said, well, did it save time? Actually, yes, he said. It used to take her 20 minutes to get breakfast ready. Now I prepare my own breakfast in seven minutes. She obviously did not like being told how to operate her own kitchen. And that's true for all of us. We like to manage our own lives. We don't like people telling us how to live our lives, how to do our job. We don't like it, even when it's Jesus who is speaking. That is exactly the subject of the episode before us this morning. That was a question before Judas and Peter and the disciples. It's a question before us as we look at this passage. Are you serving Jesus or using Jesus to serve you. There's only two points in the message this morning. The first is a common temptation. Look at verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man does, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another. Which of them it could be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now skip down to verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like me. But I've prayed for you and that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, 
I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I'll tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have, until you deny three times that you even know me. If you look closely at this, Judas, Peter, and the other disciples face the same temptation. There's a unity to this passage about that evening that we usually miss. A common temptation. First look at Judas. We looked at him last week. Why did he betray Jesus? He had been a thief from the beginning. He was the treasurer for Jesus' ministry. He kept the funds given to support the work of Christ and his disciples. We've seen that Judas had been taking money for three years for his own purposes out of that fund. Judas had been using Jesus for his own purposes. Why had he become a disciple? He thought that Jesus was the Messiah. If Jesus was the Messiah, that meant that he was going to take the throne. And in Judas' mind, that meant he was going to take the throne and rule. What better person could you know? You wanted to be close to this man. And Judas was one of the 12, the 12 men who were closer to him than anyone. When he did, when this Messiah did go to Jerusalem and take the throne, just think of the position Judas would have. He said, I'll have a position of wealth. I'll have a position of power. But that relationship, it didn't yield position and power and wealth. Jesus had begun to speak about dying an awful death. Judas knew that the Sanhedrin was planning to execute Jesus, to arrest him and to execute him, to kill him. So Judas used Jesus one last time. If he's not going to be the Messiah I want him to be, then I'll, I'll profit from this. I'll go to the Sanhedrin. They put the word on the street that they wanted somebody to tell them where they could find Jesus when he would be alone without the crowd. And so he sold them that information for 30 pieces of silver. And not only that, he got to keep the ministry funds, remember? He betrayed Jesus and bailed. Now ask yourself a question. If Jesus had come to Jerusalem and taken the throne and come to power, would Judas have betrayed him? No. Not on your life. Then Jesus would have served the purpose Judas wanted him to serve. That's Judas. Peter had a common temptation. The same temptation. He was not a thief. However, no matter what Jesus told him, 
Peter stuck to his plan for what the Messiah ought to be. Remember what happened when Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of God? Immediately, Jesus began to tell him, by the way, I've come to die. And what did Peter do? Let's look at it. Look at Matthew 16, 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, he's just condoning him. He calls him Lord. He's just confessed he's the son of God, omniscient. And yet, Lord, you can't talk like this. This can never happen to you, to the Messiah. And what did Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You're not looking at God's plan, God's providence, God's plan of salvation, but on the things of man. Peter, you're just looking at the gospel according to Peter. You're not following my idea or God's plan. In the episode before us in the upper room, Peter said, we read it a moment ago, I'll go to prison with you. I'll die with you. Why wasn't Peter able to fulfill that vow? Because he was saying, I'll fight for you in establishing your throne. When Jesus drew the battle lines and called Israel to battle, Peter was saying, I'll be there. But when Jesus was arrested at midnight and taken to the Sanhedrin, remember Peter followed him along with John. He was in that side of that courtroom and he saw him before the Sanhedrin. And for the first time, it hit Peter in that courtyard. He's going to die. They're going to crucify him. The plan according to Peter, was not going to happen. The gospel according to Peter was not going to happen. Peter found that in the new scenario, the scenario that Jesus had described to him over and over and over again, Peter found he was not ready to follow Jesus to a cross of defeat and shame. Peter was willing to fight in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember he wielded sword, cut off a servant's ear? But he was not fighting for his, he, he was fighting for his plan. He wasn't fighting for Jesus' plan. Peter and Judas had fallen to the same temptation. They had been managing Jesus. They had been making Jesus conform to their plans. Patrick Morley is a well-known Christian writer of our day. And he speaks of when he was converted to Christ. And he speaks of, he, he speaks of something like this. He said that when he was, before he was converted, that he had a philosophy of life. And that philosophy of life had two prongs. One, he wanted to be prosperous. He wanted, he wanted to be wealthy. But he, was, he was a materialist. But he was also a moralist. He said, when, when, when I was converted, before I was converted and after I was, he said, I wanted to be wealthy, but I also 
wanted to do good for the people around me. He said, that was my purpose. I wanted to be financially independent and do right by each person that I met. He said, for a while it felt right, even after he became a Christian. He said, but what I'd really done, he said, the father finally convicted him. He said, what I had done was I had just added Christ to my philosophy of life. I just added him. And I asked him to bless the way I was living. I asked him to baptize the way I was, was living. He said, I didn't stop being a moralist. I didn't stop being a materialist. I just added Christ to my existing philosophy. That's exactly what Peter and Judas and the other disciples did. It's what most of us do. We simply add Jesus to our existing philosophies of life and somehow get him to support our ideas. Jesus serves us. We want Jesus to conform to us. This message really bothered me this week. I asked myself the question over and over again, do I use Jesus? Do I use my calling? Do I use this pulpit? Do you, I use my vocation and service to him? Or am I managing this for my own ends? Am I managing Jesus as a minister to serve me. And I can tell you, I do that. We all do. At some point. We use Jesus to justify our lifestyle. Think about the history and the history of Christianity. In every century, Jesus has been used to justify slavery. Jesus has been used to justify prejudice, racism, male chauvinism. Jesus has been used to justify feminism. Materialism, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality. We've used him to preach moralism instead of grace. Who doesn't do that? We've used him to preach works instead of the cross. The Shorter Catechism begins... What is the chief end of man? You know it. What's the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We've changed it. What's the chief end of God? To glorify man and make him happy. Look at this passage and don't miss it. It's sobering. You'll see a common temptation. Not only to Judas and Peter, but to us. Secondly, second point, a costly capitulation. Look at verse 24. The dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table 
are one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's Jesus speaking. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 times of Israel. For years, I have stood in that upper room and listened to the disciples go from Jesus saying, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. Am I going to do that? And go to them. I just thought it was ludicrous. They went from that to talking about who's the greatest? Who does Jesus love the most? Who's the closest to Jesus? Who's going to be closer to him, the closest to him, when he comes into his kingdom? But it makes sense. It's just one small step from saying, I'm not the one, am I, Jesus? I'm really a good disciple. I'm great. In fact, who, who, who in this room is greater than me? That's the, it was an inane conversation. Imagine this. He's hours away from the cross, and here are these disciples having a serious conversation. Who's the greatest? How did Jesus answer their inane discussion? He said, you've never gotten it. Have I ruled among you? Is this the example I set? I've called you to be a servant. I called you to follow me because I'm a servant. Remember I said over and over again, I have not come to be served, but I've come to serve and even give my life a ransom for many. I've never gotten it. I believe this is a place where Jesus washed their feet. Now we're in Luke, and Luke doesn't talk about that. Neither does Matthew, neither does Mark. John did. Why did John write about that? And you know that John, he wrote about the Passover in that room, but he did not write about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Not the Gospel of John. Why? His was the last Gospel written. He knew what Matthew had said about the upper room. He knew what Mark had said about the upper room. He had read what Luke said about the upper room. But they hadn't said a thing about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And that's what John, that was John's subject of the upper room. Not the Lord's table, as precious as it is. But he talked about Jesus getting on his knees. The Lord from glory, the Prince of heaven, and washing their dirty feet. It was when they had this conversation that Jesus did that. Jesus said, indeed, one day you'll sit at the table and be served in glory, but not till you get home. Here you will be servants, just as I've been a servant. What does a servant do? What does a servant do? You can say, well, he does menial tasks that others don't do. What does a servant do? The greatest thing a servant has, the greatest problem a servant has, is conforming his will, his way of thinking, to the master, to his master's will and his master's way of thinking. That's the hard part. 
Master, what do you want? What are your goals? How do you think? What am I supposed to be doing? There was a an American traveling in Europe and in a museum, in an art gallery, I should say, he came across the most profound picture he had ever seen of Christ and the crucifixion. It was huge. It was massive. And he was moved by it. And he said, I've got to have that. He was a man of substantial wealth, and he bought it. Had it shipped home. He could hardly wait to show it to his decorator. told his decorator, he said, you've done a great job with my house. I want you to take this painting and put it in the right place. Put it in the right place in this house. And the decorator just laughed. And he said, I know every inch of this house. And a painting that is this profound and this large, you don't have a place for it. He said, this is the kind of painting that you build a house around. He said, you'll have to redo everything if you're going to put this painting in your house. That's what Jesus does. See, we have the, we have the thing, I'll invite Jesus in. I'll add Jesus to my existing life, and he'll be there, and I'll say, yes, I know Jesus. I'm a Christian. Really? That man had to build, rebuild his house if he was going to house that painting. If you're going to house Christ, if your life is going to house Christ, it has to be rearranged around him. Is Jesus alive in your life? Is he that great love, that great authority, the single authority around which your life rotates? Jesus once said to Peter, if you would follow me, you want to follow Jesus? You want to follow me? Here's what you've got to do. If you would follow me, deny yourself. Deny your will, your way. Take up your cross. What does that mean? Did you take up some hard task? No. It means you die. When a man took up his cross to go to a place of crucifixion, he would die. Jesus said, deny yourself. Go and die, and then come and follow me. That's what he told Peter. I read about a man 30 years ago. His name was Harry Truman, not the President of the United States. But he lived on the side of Mount St. Helens in 1980. He had been warned day after day, week after week, he had been warned that a volcano at Mount St. Helens was about to become active. It was about to explode. There would be a gigantic eruption. But he would not move. He had some land there. He had an old lodge. He said he did not want to leave his land. He said, somebody will come and they'll make off with my stuff. He had lived there all his life. He wasn't moving. 
he would not change his life to suit Volcano. At 8.32 on the morning of May 18th, 1980, the blast that hit him and his house was moving at 300 miles per hour. He didn't have time to turn his head. He and all of his stuff was buried under lava, ash, and rock. Before the blast, he could live under the illusion that he was greater than the mountain. The mountain would just have to fit into his life. But after the mountain blew, his life, his stuff was like a piece of lint in a furnace. We want Jesus in our lives, but who is he? The Son of God, the Lord of glory. Mount St. Helens, that volcano, was a mere spark compared to him. The Son and all of his power is just a spark compared to him. And that's who's in us. Do you serve Jesus or do you use Jesus to serve you? There was a church in Santa Fe, New Mexico that has a sign over the door. It's the only door into the church, only door out of the church, only entrance, only exit. And over the door is a great sign. It reads, Servants entrance. That's what is over every door in the church of Jesus Christ. Only servants come through those doors. So do you serve Jesus or do we use Jesus to serve us? Our closing hymn is though I may speak with the bravest fire.